I'm going to ask that you would go with me to the book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Isaiah, the sixth chapter. And we're just looking at one verse today. Just one verse. And that's the first verse. Isaiah 6 and 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Your version may read differently, but I ask that you read along with me. And the word of the Lord says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Let me read again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uncertain times. No one likes living in uncertain times. Our human nature, we prefer life when things are going as planned or expected. We don't, many times we don't like surprises, especially when those surprises kind of leave us unsettled. And we don't know which way to go or what to do. We enjoy life when the outcome is favorable and good. We like it when things are going our way, things are going as planned. But oh, when things are uncertain, with uncertain outcomes, life surely becomes challenging. How much easier it would be for us if we had a script of our lives and we could read ahead and see the parts that were coming on tomorrow or on the next day, or on the next week, or even the next minute or the next hour, how easy it would be for us so we could brace ourselves and we could plan and say, okay, this is coming. Let me, let me, let, let me hunker down. Let me see what I can do to fix things, to change things, to find hope in things, but life isn't that way. Even now when we leave this place, we don't know what the outcome might be. We don't know what may happen when we leave this place. We don't know what may happen on the next year, the next day, the next hour. We see that in life, even in our own circumstances, Things that we would expect didn't necessarily go our way. Things that we would hope for didn't necessarily come to pass. And sometimes we just wonder, Lord, why is it this way? What is it I can do to change things? But as we look at this verse, we'll find that it was an, ex, an uncertain time for the people of Judah, for the, for the nation of Judah, for the people of Jerusalem. It was an unsettling time, an uncertain time. But in this verse, we see that we will see that there is hope for us in uncertain times. There is hope for us when we're not sure what the outcome will be. So may I, if I may take for a title, on this afternoon, it simply is, God is. 
God is. Let us pray. Precious and all wise God, we give your name the praise, the glory, and the honor. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, for your tender mercy. We thank you, precious Lord, for it is you because of you that we're even here on this afternoon. And even now, Lord, we are so grateful for all that has already been done. We are so grateful for the opportunity to come together as a family, as a body, and lift up your holy and matchless name, to sing your praises, to give you the reverence that is rightfully yours. And now, Lord, we come to hear and receive your word on this afternoon. Lord, our prayer is that your word be taught and preached in truth and in fullness in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that I not speak my thoughts, my wants, my desires, but Lord, let nothing but your holy word come forth. We pray, precious Lord, that you will continue to have your way in this place on this afternoon, that you will be glorified. Lord, we pray once again that all things be done in decency and in order, that all praise, all honor, and all glory will go unto you, the author and finisher of our faith. We give your name to praise, and we just thank you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when we look at the book of Isaiah, we know that the writer is attributed to the prophet of the same name. We see it right at the very beginning, Isaiah 1 and 1. It says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Some people, when they look at the book of Isaiah, they call it a mini version of the Bible, so to speak. You see, the Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. One commentator put it like this. It says, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, like the first 39 books of the Bible in the Old Testament, deal a lot with God's judgment upon a sinful and idolatrous people. But the last 27 books, like the two New Testament, give us a message of hope because there is a Messiah who would come to save. Amen. As a matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, we have some of the most direct prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. We see so many prophecies that came true. So much so that some historians believe that there was more than one author of the book of Isaiah because it contains so much detailed accounts of events that would occur. And some of these detailed accounts occurred long after Isaiah was dead. You see, the only other explanation would be that Isaiah had to receive a prophecy from God. And that's what we stand on because the word of the Lord is true. That is, that is how exact the prophecies contained in the book of Isaiah are. So when we look through the book and the pages of Isaiah, the opening chapters give us a state of Judah and Jerusalem, so to speak. He addresses how the people of Judah had turned away from God and turned to their own cares and devices. And because they had turned away, they would experience 
a coming devastation and destruction. They would go through perilous times. But Isaiah also, in these opening chapters, he foreshadowed hope that there would be a way to redemption and salvation. The Lord reigns, and he will have a people who would worship him and revere him. So then when we come here to chapter 6, we see what is called Isaiah's commissioning or his calling. And it's with that, with this opening verse, we get to see the vision that Isaiah, Isaiah experienced. In Isaiah 6 and 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, he opens up this verse by giving us a time frame. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was about 16 years when he began to reign in Judah, and he reigned for over 50 years. The account of his time on the throne can be found in 2 Kings, the 15th chapter, but in more detail in 2 Chronicles 26. When you look and you study his reign, you'll find that it was one of the most prosperous times for the kingdoms since the days of Solomon. As for the most part, Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He had set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. That's what 2 Chronicles 26.5 says, because Zechariah had instructed him in the fear of God. And it says, as long as he sought the Lord God, God made him prosper. You see, Uzziah was given high intelligence and great innovation as a leader. With God's help, Uzziah defeated the Philistines and and the Arabs. He built fortified towers and strengthened the armies of Judah. His armies had every weapon you can imagine at that time. They even had devices that could shoot arrows and stones from the towers to protect the city from incoming invaders. He had built up the land so great that they had all the livestock and all the vegetation they needed, all because God had given him favor. And it was because of that his name and his fame had spread far and wide, so much so that other nations were coming to bring tribute so they can live in peace. They didn't want smoke from Uzziah and and Judah. So they were bringing him tributes. Uzziah had become powerful. He had become famous. And that was the beginning of the end. You see, if you read 2 Chronicles 26, it gives us detail in how he forgot that all that he had received, all the fame, all the fortune, all the, all the prosperity was because of God. His pride led to his downfall. Second Chronicles 26, 16 just puts it plainly. When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. It tells us further that he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Some of you may be like, well, what's the big deal? He, he was going to, to was, was, it looks like he was going to worship. But the law dictated at that time that only the priest could burn incense to the Lord. And he was warned, Uzziah, leave this place because you are disobeying the word of God. But he refused to repent and he grew angry. And it was at that time that the Lord struck him with leprosy. That got him out. When that leprosy struck his forehead, 
He said, I messed up. And he left the temple of the Lord. But it was already done. Uzziah, to the day of his death, lived as a leper. Lived in a separate house, excluded from the house of the Lord. And his son had to continue governing the people in his stead. So you can imagine that this was a sign of uncertain times. This great king who had reigned for over 50 years was no longer on the throne. During his reign, Judah prospered. He caused the land to flourish. He had great livestock. All that they needed was there. But now he's gone. But now. Not only is he no longer king, look at the circumstances of the end of his reign. Struck by leprosy, struck with leprosy by God. One of the most prosperous rulers the kingdom has ever had. And he didn't die peacefully. His last days were treated as being someone who was unclean. He couldn't even stay in his own royal quarters. He couldn't even attend to his own daily royal duties. But rather, he had to live out his days in a separate house until he died. Until he died. Not only that, but Judah's cousins up north, they were dealing with the threat of the Assyrians. They were starting to make inroads to take over the northern kingdom of Israel. And now their mighty king, who had raised a great army and fortified the city, he's gone. What if these Assyrians came our way? Mm. Uncertain times had struck Judah and Jerusalem. And when we look at that and we study, and as we continue further in verse 1, we'll see that even though it was uncertain times, Isaiah began to make powerful illustration contrasting Uzziah with God that, was, that would give hope to us even now. You see, in Isaiah 6 and 1, he says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Uzziah was gone. Other kings would come after him. They died too. But God is still on the throne. You see, that's important for us to realize even now. Rulers come and rulers go. Political powers and political systems, they come and go. Even in our own lives, people come and go. Situations come and go. Our own hopes, dreams, ambitions, and desires, all these things come and go. But God is still on the throne. We see so much change in the world. We ourselves, we experience change. But the God we serve, he doesn't change. So the first thing I want you to realize in this verse is that God is immutable. You say, what that, what's that? That's a fancy word for God doesn't change. Malachi 3 and 6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Well, you say, well, how does this verse tell us that he doesn't change? Because God is on the throne. Look through your Bible. You'll see it all throughout the Bible that God was, is, and always will be on the throne. Amen. Psalm 9 and 7 says, the Lord sits enthroned forever. Psalm 45 and 6 says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 1 Kings 22, 19, Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. 
Lamentations 5 and 19 says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. And even in Revelation 4 and 2, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. You see, God is always on the throne. And nothing can change that. He will always be king. He will always be God. He cannot cease being who he is because he doesn't change. So when you recognize that God doesn't change, then that means the things that he does, the effects that they have, they don't change. His love doesn't change. His mercy doesn't change. His grace doesn't change. The word of God that we're reading right now, it doesn't change. So that's a reason for us to find hope. God is immutable. So then as we continue to look at that verse, we also see that God is sovereign. The word sovereign is both a noun and an adjective. As a noun, to be sovereign is someone who is defined as one that exercises supreme and permanent authority. As an adjective, it describes, as, to describe something as being sovereign means that it has absolute power, power that cannot be checked by anyone or anything. Mm. Pastor D was here a few weeks ago and he, when he preached, he gave us a little nugget about the usages of the word Lord in the Old Testament. Some of you may remember that when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament in all caps, it's a replacement for the occurrence of God's Hebrew name, Yahweh, I am. But most times when you see the Lord with the capital L and the lowercase O-R-D, it's the Hebrew word for Adonai, which means Lord or Master. So when you combine those two aspects, God is Lord, and you combine that with he's sitting on an everlasting throne. The result is you have a sovereign God who reigns with permanent authority, with absolute power. God reigns over the nations and God sits on his holy throne. That's what Psalms 47 and 8 reminds us. Colossians 1 and 16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God is sovereign. Pastor Tim was here last week and he broke down sovereignty in his message last week by highlighting three points. He said God declares his purposes in everything and everywhere. He said God's purposes always come to pass. And God can use anything he desires to achieve his purposes. In other words, God is in control. God can do absolutely what he wants, when he wants, how he wants it, whenever he wants it. And nothing we can do or think or nothing that any, any, any creation or no one can stop what God plans and purposes to do. God is in control. So when we look at that and we see the contrast that Isaiah was building between Uzziah and God, you see why Uzziah changed. He went from heeding the commands of God to disobeying the word of God. Mm. But God never changed. Come on, brother. He's still immutable. Mm. And while Uzziah's reign and his authority, it had a time limit, it came to an end. God's reign doesn't end mm. because he is sovereign. 
So then that brings us to some more attributes that we see in this verse. Isaiah 6 and 1, it says that he is high and lifted up. In other words, God is exalted. God is exalted. In his position, he is higher than all. God is over everything. The scripture that Natasha read, Psalm 46 and 10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. First Corinthians 29 and 11 says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. You see, when God, since God is, is exalted, there is no one, no thing, no creation, no power or authority that is greater than God. Mm. We can turn on the news and we see people in power doing this and doing different things and it, it, it grieves us. We, we see people in authority and it seems like they don't care about people like us. But we know that the God that we serve is higher than those that are in authority. Mm. It's him that puts these people in positions, and it's him that removes them. God is higher than all. Isaiah 57 and 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So when you think about if God is higher, then that must mean he is also greater. And if he is greater, then that means he is also more powerful. Mm. So the next thing we need to recognize is that God is all-powerful. All right. God is omnipotent. Mm. Ephesians 1.21 says, Far above all ruling authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Mm. God has all uh, ultimate authority and power. Psalm 62 and 11 says, Once God has spoken, Twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. You see, there's nothing that God can't do. Mm. I say it all the time. God can do anything but fail. He has all power. You see, we can formulate things in our minds. We can imagine things, but it doesn't mean we can bring it to pass. But just with the sound of his voice, he spoke, let there be, and the universe in its entirety came into existence. That's power. He formed us from the dust of the earth and breathed in our nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. That's power. Joshua 10 and 13 tells us that because of God, the sun stood still and the moon stopped until he decreed that it move again. That's power. Daniel 20, uh, Daniel 2 and 21 says he sets the changes or he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's power. Mm. We even see it in the New Testament. It was Jesus when he spoke to the winds and the waves and he calls it to cease. That is power. With all of the things that we can do with all of our ingenuity, with all of our man-made wisdom, we can't, we can't speak to the winds and waves and make it stop. Mm. A flood, we can have a, a, a nice, great, big mansion fortified with all the finest things, but let a flood come our way, mm. and it could tear that house down. Mm. 
We don't have the power. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the ingenuity. But God's power is so, is so ultimate that all he has to do is speak. And it is. That's power. And it's with that we see the next contrast that Isaiah was building. Isaiah tried to exalt himself. And he was made low. But God is high and lifted up. And he's forever to be exalted. Uzziah thought his success was because of his own power, but God stripped it away and made him powerless. That right there shows us that God is all-powerful. And then as we continue on, we see that at the end of verse 1, he says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Saints, God is glorious. When you search through the scripture and you find instances of the temple being filled, it's a a reference to the wondrous glory of God. One example, 1 Kings 8 and 11 says, The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Revelation 15 and 8 says, The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power that no one can enter the sanctuary. You can even think back uh, when we think about the glory of God. Moses asked God to see his glory in Exodus 33. And God told him that no man can see his face and live. But he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and allowed him to see his back as he passed by. The train filled the temple. You see, in clothing, when we look at it, we think about a train, it's that long back portion of a robe, a coat, a cloak, a skirt, a dress, or a gown that trails behind the wearer. Oftentimes, we just look at it as this long, insignificant piece of fabric. But it's often when you look at the train of a garment, when you think about the wedding gowns, that some of the elaborate wedding gowns and some of the elaborate robes that people wear, the train is often its most intricate and elaborate part of the, of the, of the, of the, clothing, of the cloth. And it, 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 it details such beauty when you examine it. Mm-hmm. And that's what God's glory is. John Piper defined God's glory like this in the best way that he could. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The infinite beauty, and I'm focusing on the manifestation of his character and his worth and his attributes, all of his perfections and greatness are beautiful as they are seen, and there are many of them. That is why I use the word manifold. In other words, all that God is, all that he does, all that he wills is glorious. There's no mistake or imperfection in God at all. There's no blemish or spot or wrinkle in God at all. He is altogether lovely. He is perfect in all of his ways. So when it comes time to ascribe glory, all glory can only go to him because there is none like God. And then when you read that the train of his robe, that last extra part of his robe filled the temple all by itself. We see that God is infinite. Mm. He is so vast and immense that his glory could not be contained. The common theological meaning of God being infinite is that he exists outside of and is not limited to time or space. 
In other words, God being infinite simply means that he's without limits, that he's without boundaries. Second Chronicles 2 and 6 says, but who is able to build him a house since heaven and even the highest heaven cannot contain him? And this goes beyond his presence. Psalm 103 and 11 talks about his immeasurable love towards us. Ephesians 1 19 reminds us of God's immeasurable greatness of his power. God is infinite. He cannot be contained. He cannot be put in a little box. He's too vast. He's too great. He's too immeasurable. You see, Isaiah thought the glory was his, but it was God's alone. Isaiah couldn't even stay in the temple because of his sin. But God was so great and God is so great that his train alone filled the temple. That little insignificant part of his robe filled the temple. The, the, the temple could not contain all of the Lord and his glory and his splendor because God is infinite. So what can we take from all this? We see that Uzziah was gone, that great and powerful king. We see that there were uncertain times ahead. We see in the pages leading up to that chapter that once again that the people, will, because of their sin, they were going to be punished because of their disobedience to God. But in this verse, there is hope. Because we see that it truly wasn't because of Uzziah that there was prosperity and sanctuary for the people. But it was all because of God alone. You see, man could not do nor will ever be able to do what God is able to do. So when we when we look at this verse, we need to recognize that we don't should not and don't do not need to look to man or find our hope in man or put our faith in man. But rather look to God, put your hope in God, put your faith in God and trust in God. You see, he was the same God who made covenant with their ancestors. He was the same God that led them out of Egypt. And though they would sin and turn away, he was the same God of hope who would provide a way to be reconciled. Amen. Isaiah 1 and 18 says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Mm. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And this was not just for the Jew, but for all those who would believe. And that's the beauty of the gospel message. Because the gospel message is not, is not because of who we are, but the gospel message is all because of who God is. Here, here we see it, that he is and always was and always will be the true and living God. But man, in our sin and our disobedience, we turned away from God. We turned to our own desires. We turned to our sin. We turned to what we want, what we wanted, and we were deserving of God's wrath and punishment. But God is sovereign. Ephesians 1 and 4 and 5 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. On, God is sovereign. Mm. You see, in his sovereignty, he set God, the son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin and walk in flesh. Yet he was without sin. He was both fully God and fully man. And because we cannot redeem ourselves, we cannot offer a sacrifice worthy enough to satisfy the holy and unchanging God of truth. So in his sovereignty, Jesus gave himself to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
John 12, 32 and 33 says it. When I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. You see, he said this to show about what, what kind of death he would be. But we see that in his death, Christ was exalted by death on his cross or death on the cross. And, it's, and his exaltation did not stop there as God showed his true power that he raised Jesus from the grave on the third day with all power in his hand, power over sin and power over the grave. In his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, we see the glorious exaltation of Jesus Christ, drawing sinners to himself so that those who would believe would be redeemed and reconciled back to him. And because Christ the Son was glorified, John 17 reminds us that God the Father was also glorified. You see, the flesh could not hold back God's glory. Death could not stop God's glory. The grave could not contain God's glory because God's glory will always reign preeminently. Amen. So even though circumstances and situations will always change, God is still God. Amen. People in our lives will change. We have friends today and enemies tomorrow. They love us today, they hate us tomorrow, but God is still God. Why wouldn't anyone want to serve a God like this? The God who is still God. And I thank God that if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, we come to know God through repentance and faith, turning away from our sins and turning away from those worldly cares and turning unto him who is able to keep us, turning to him who is able to save us, turning to him because he is God. So for us who have done that, who have placed our faith in Christ Jesus, this is why we as believers have reason to hope. Amen. Because this God who is above all things and, he, and who, is a, who is all of these things and above all things and so much more, this God is on our side. He will never leave us or forsake us. And we know that all, thi all the things that we go through, they're not for our detriment. But God is able to use these things for his glory. So when we find ourselves in uncertain times or, or difficulties, rather than focusing on the issue, look for God. On, That's where we can get out of this verse. Instead of looking at our circumstances, looking at our problems, looking at our tragedies, look to God. Mm. Look for God. Focus on God. On, Remind yourself on who God is. Mm. In your prayers, focus on who God is. Mm. When you're, even when you're blessed and you find everything is going your way, then give thanks to God. Know that it is because of God. Continue to keep your focus on God. And even when times may be uncertain and we don't know what tomorrow may hold, we can continue to focus on God because in God, in God, because in God there is nothing that is uncertain in his eyes. He knows our tomorrows. He knows our futures. He knows the plan that he has for us. So there is no uncertainty in God. He has all of these things already figured out. So our response in that should be that we should trust in him. We should rest in him. We should believe in him. And even when things may look grim, things may look dark, know that it is not for our hurt. Know that he did not set us up for failure, but rather he is setting us up so that we can that through our lives that he can be glorified because God is so if you don't get anything else from this message on this afternoon remember to search the word and find who God is 
If you don't remember all of these terms that I've mentioned on this afternoon, God is that and so much more. Just open up your Bible and search it. Because we are in uncertain times. But we thank God that once again, none of these things are uncertain to him. He already knows. And even though it may be uncertain for us in our flesh, if you go to the end of the book, we know. We know we have victory already promised. That all of this is, all, is only temporary. But in the end, we have victory. We'll reign. We'll, we will see God reigning in all of his glory. We'll, 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 we'll see that new Jerusalem. We'll be a part of that new Jerusalem, worshiping God forever. It's already promised to us, saints. So just continue to hold on and believe and know that God is. Let us pray. Precious and all-wise God, we give your name the praise, the glory, and the honor. And Lord, we just continue to thank you for your, for your word. We thank you, precious Lord, that we can continue to hope and believe and trust in you. Lord, we turn on the news and we see devastation and destruction. We look around in our own households and we see heartache and pain and suffering. But we thank you, precious Lord, that even though times are trying, times can be difficult. We are grateful, Lord, that we can put our hope, our trust, our faith, that we can rest in you, Lord, because you are the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. So we can trust in you in all things, Lord. So we pray, precious Lord, that we can continue to preach to ourselves when times are hard, that you are God and remind ourselves who you are. When we don't know what tomorrow will hold, that we can encourage ourselves by trusting in who you are. Yes, and even when times may seem to be going our way, that we don't ascribe it to our own selves, but we just humbly say, thank you, Lord. I have this because of who you are. So in all things, Lord, we pray that we will continue to seek you and look to find who you, the true holy God, is. We give your name all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.